our Lord shall return as we read once more from the 16th chapter of the book of Acts. The book of Acts in the New Testament, if you are a visitor, we encourage you to follow the Bible reading from your own Bible or the Bible in the pew rack in front of you. The 16th chapter of the book of Acts, verses 35 to 40. The concluding section of this remarkable chapter as we read of the release of Paul and Silas after their beating and their imprisonment in the jail in Philippi. When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the order, release those men. The jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave. Go in peace. But Paul said to the officers, They beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens and threw us into prison. And now do they want to get rid of us quietly? No, let them come themselves and escort us out. The officers reported this to the magistrates. And when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. They came to appease them and escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. After Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house, where they met with the brothers and encouraged them. Then they left. This is the living and the abiding word of God. Thanks be to his most holy name. Now, on these Sunday mornings, as many of you are aware, we have been spending a considerable time in the book of the Acts of the Apostles in the New Testament, and I believe that we have spent almost six full Sundays on this one chapter of the 16th of Acts. And we have been reading in this remarkable account within this chapter of two of the greatest missionary servants of the church, probably, who have ever lived in the Christian centuries, Paul and Silas. And how that mission, you remember, began with the strengthening of the churches in various regions that had already been evangelized by the missionaries, and how so remarkably they were led by a vision from the Holy Spirit to cross over from Asia Minor into the continent of Europe, where we have the first recorded preaching of the gospel. And in our studies on these Sunday mornings, we have seen remarkable lessons on the subject of how God guides his people and his church and how he brings men and women to faith in Christ, as we have considered together the conversion, first of Lydia and then of the anonymous slave girl, and finally the remarkable conversion of the Roman jailer from the prison of Philippi. Now, I was tempted to leave this passage and this chapter last Sunday evening with that what I thought was the concluding exposition in this chapter. But the more I thought about it, the more I felt that there are still some very vital and essential principles, beloved, for us to grasp before we leave the 16th of Acts. 
as there came into being from this chapter one of the loveliest of the New Testament churches, the church of Philippi, to which Paul, you remember, later wrote his remarkable letter to the Philippians, the book of Philippians, a community that was quite singular in its purity and fruitfulness. It seemed to be a church to which Paul could write with scarcely one syllable of rebuke in his letter. He thanked God on remembrance of them. In every supplication for them, he made request, he says, with joy. He called them his beloved and longed for, my joy and crown. And he longed for them, he says, in the tender mercies of Jesus Christ. And this was the church that came out of the 16th chapter of Acts. Now, I think for that reason alone, we should pause this morning before we leave it and look at these powerful lessons and principles that lay behind the founding of such a church as this, to which Paul so glowingly wrote in later years. And it shows to us, I believe this morning, as we take a final overview of the chapter, what a most amazing instrument of God the Christian gospel really is. Now, there are three things that I want to share with you as time permits this morning. And the first of them, then, the first of these great principles is that the gospel appears to be insignificant, and yet it is truly great. Now, I wonder if you've picked that up from your reading on these number of Sunday mornings as we have gone through the passage together, the insignificance of the gospel, but yet its true greatness. Well, what do I mean? There are three things, really, I think, involved in this, and let me patiently share them with you this morning. But the gospel, for one thing, had very insignificant beginnings in this city of Philippi. Do you remember that this is the first record of the gospel ever being preached on the continent of Europe? And that, in a real sense, the reason why you and I are sitting where we are, or I am standing in the pulpit, is because, centuries ago, two men went as missionaries to the little Greek city of Philippi. And almost certainly it is the first time that the gospel was being preached in Europe because that alone accounts for the great length in which Luke the historian gives the events that happened there in this chapter. Probably the longest record of the apostolic uh, visit to any city in the New Testament. And so, as we come to Philippi, we're standing, as it were, at the very wellhead of what is to become a mighty river of God's grace that is going to flow through the whole of Europe in years and centuries succeeding. Here is the beginning. Europe is about to be evangelized. And you see with what a small and apparently insignificant start it commences. 
Or again, you think of the city of Philippi to which the apostle went. I think I mentioned to you that it was named after Philip of Macedon, one of the great Greek kings. And his son was the world-renowned Alexander the Great, the conqueror of worlds. And it was also the scene of one of the great battles, the decisive battles of history, when in 42 BC, some of you may know this, after Brutus and Cassius had slain Julius Caesar, there outside the gates of Philippi in northeastern Greece, a decisive battle was waged that was to determine the course of the civilized world. And as a result of that battle, the Roman Republic was no more. It died. And there came the emperors and the Roman Empire with Augustus. And yet, as the tumult and the shouting dies, the captains and the kings depart, what we remember about Philippi is not its importance and Philip of Macedon and Alexander the Great and the battle that settled the fate of the civilized world. But what we remember, beloved, is how a little man came there 90 years later into the streets of Philippi. And it is his name that is forever associated with that city the little man who was the Apostle Paul. But especially as you look at verse 13, you notice that the gospel is insignificant in its beginnings. Who would have thought that day when these two men went out on a Sabbath morning through the gates of the city down to the river Gangites and met with a group of insignificant women but a world-changing event was about to take place. The little weather-beaten Jew, travel-stained, of weak bodily presence, as we know from the Corinthian epistles, and of contemptible speech, according to them, with his handful of attendants, slipping out of the city early one morning and talking informally with a group of women. And if you had said to any of the great men of Philippi on that day, but here was an event that would forever be recorded in the annals of the world's history, and you had said to the great men of Philippi, you will be forgotten. But among that group of women, there will be three names recorded forever on the pages of history. They would have laughed you to scorn. But Lydia, who was there, and probably Euodia and Syntyche, two other women mentioned in Paul's letter to the Philippians, whom we suppose may well have been there also. But these three women would be remembered by generations yet to come. Now do you see what I'm saying to you? The mightiest thing that was done in the whole continent of Europe that morning was when the apostle sat down by the riverside and spoke to the women who had gathered there. 
insignificant beginnings. And you know, beloved, we live in an age that is in danger of making the same mistake as the great men of Philippi might have made that Sabbath morning. We are tempted to think that the most important things are the things that the world gives accolades to, for which there are trumpet fanfares. And surely what we learn from this passage is that only what is done for God is truly great. And the really great things in this world, however small and insignificant their beginnings may be, are the things that are done for God's glory and his recognition and praise. And you see, what Paul did that morning in the souls of men had consequences that would roll through many lives far greater than the deeds that are showy that the world recognizes and applauds. And those are the deeds that are long-lived and lasting. Now I say to you this morning, do not be overawed then by the world's view of what may be going on in this congregation, in your own life, in the church of God at large, because the gospel often has small and insignificant beginnings. But do you notice, secondly, with me, that there is implied in this also the law of growth as well as the law of small beginnings. It's connected with what I am just, just said to you. You see that thin thread of water that is beginning to flow in the Greek city of Philippi, so insignificant and so small, but in the course of time, what does it become, beloved? The broad bosom of an expanded ocean. As the gospel spreads and sweeps through all the countries of Europe and comes eventually to the shores of North America itself. So the law of small beginnings goes on to the law of slow and often inconspicuous development. Don't you see this in the teaching of Jesus as well? In the parable of the mustard seed, when he said, Is not the mustard seed the smallest of all the seeds that the farmer plants in the earth? Yet when it is fully grown, it is greater than any of the herbs and the very birds of heaven come and rest in its overshadowing branches. That's what my kingdom will be like, said Jesus. And don't you see it in the very life of the Savior himself? That this tiny baby born in Bethlehem, this helpless infant who went on to the carpenter's shop for 30 years, in those hidden years of his life, and then spent only two or three years in public ministry in a remote corner of the world, and then passed silently away, and the world did not even recognize who he was. Have you ever thought of that? 
but it's the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy. He shall not strive, nor cry, nor shall his voice be heard in the streets. There were no fanfares and trumpet accolades for Jesus in the days of his earthly ministry. It was like the mustard seed planted in the bosom of the earth that was destined yet to become a greater shrub than all the other herbs put together. And as the Christ is, so his church is, when it is true to its mission, and so the gospel is, and so the great movements of the church in history usually are. A movement of slow, inconspicuous development, but development that has roots and substance to it, beloved. You know, we're living in days of impatient haste, aren't we? where we're rushing to and fro in six directions at once. And we need to learn a lesson that the reed springs up in a single night and perishes in a single night. But how long does it take for an oak sapling to grow to a height where a sheep cannot crop on it? And you see what I'm saying. A moth lives its full life out in a single day. And we tend to forget today in the Christian church that the rate of growth may be swift when the duration of its existence is small. It springs up in a night and it perishes in a night. But this is not, beloved, how the kingdom of God usually grows. And I say to you this morning that if you are staggered by the slow growth of grace in your own life, the slow growth of God's work, say, in this congregation, and you're often downcast and discouraged by it, I say to you, you should not be discouraged if you are using the means of grace and if you are living obediently before Christ. Because the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, one day before the Lord is as a thousand years. His march is very slow because it is ever onwards. And far rather give me a slow and inconspicuous growth in any congregation than the swift results that have no substance to them so that we live in a fool's paradise and we think there is progress and advance when there is no root and substance to it. And you find that when the testing fires come, all that you really have is a handful of people, after all, who are truly committed to Christ and his gospel and his church. You see what I'm saying to you? The law of small beginnings is followed by the law of slow and often inconspicuous growth. But God is in that. And that's what counts. Now the third thing you notice, and quickly on this, is the simplicity of the instruments that God uses. Isn't that another outstanding lesson of Acts chapter 16? 
It's almost ludicrous, I suggest to you, to compare the end that Paul was aiming at with the means that he used to accomplish it. What was the end? The evangelization of lands yet unseen. Barbarian lands of Europe, some of which did not even know the civilizing influences of the Roman Empire. You think of, of Europe as it was at that time, Rome all-powerful, Greek influence pervasive, the fountain of all human wisdom and philosophy in those times, the unknown barbarian lands beyond the pale of the Roman Empire, the moral corruption of all of society, and the spiritual darkness that pervaded everything like the thick darkness of night. And then you read in verse 13, we went out to the riverside and we spoke to the women who resorted there. Isn't it amazing? These were the means by which Paul began the conquest of a continent. We sat by the riverside and we spoke the word of God to a handful of women. Now you see, it's like the five smooth stones, isn't it, that David drew out of the brook with which to slay Goliath, the foe and enemy of God's people. Have we got those smooth stones in the church today? Yes, we have. The message which they spoke and the white heat of earnestness by which they spoke it and above all the divine helper who empowered the message and winged it home to the hearts of those whom he had appointed for salvation. That's all the means that they had, but it was adequate. And you know, we're living in days, aren't we, when the church, I believe, has got so sidetracked into all kinds of additional things, it's almost as though we are ready to give a vote of no confidence in what was central in the apostolic ministry and missionary outreach. The means by which a con continent was to be conquered was the speaking of God's word with earnestness and independence upon God who would empower the message home to human hearts. We have that message today. It's as potent as ever. It's as truly adapted to the complicated lives of men and women in the modern technological society we live in today as it was in the first century. It's as mighty as ever it was. And if only the Christian church would keep central that which the Bible puts central, we would realize that the cross of Christ does not need to be propped up, beloved. It needs only to be proclaimed in the power of God and there will be inevitable fruitfulness to follow. So you see what I'm saying to you. The gospel, as we learn from this passage, is often insignificant. But oh, how wonderfully great it is as well. Now the second great lesson, the overarching lesson, the summarizing lesson 
of Acts 16 is surely that the gospel not only is insignificant but truly great. Its ministry is diverse, yet unified. There is diversity, yet unity. Now, if you look with me at verse 14 and following, verse 16 and following, verse 29 and following, we focus in upon the three converts that Luke has drawn to our attention. Lydia, the nameless slave girl, and finally, the Philippian jailer. Now, it's hard to imagine a more disparate, that is, different group than this. Racially, they were different. Socially, they were different. Psychologically, they were different. They were worlds apart, the one from the other. Yet all three came to Christ by the same gospel and became members of the same church. Consider this. First, they were different in national origins. Now you remember that Philippi was a very cosmopolitan town, something like Jacksonville is. It has southerners in it, and it has Yankees in it, and it even has Scotsmen in it. It was a great Greek city before it became a Roman colony. It stood astride the great east-west highway that ran right across central northern Greece, known as the Via Ignatia, the Ignatian Way, one of the famous highways of Roman times. And it brought into the city, this great highway, travelers and residents from all the earths and perths of the Roman Empire, from all over. And here was Lydia. And she wasn't a native of that city. She was an immigrant in Philippi. You remember from Asia Minor, across the Aegean Sea, from the land that we know today as modern Turkey. And the slave girl was almost certainly Greek in nationality, and a resident of the city, perhaps imported there as slaves often were from another part of Greece. And there was the jailer, almost certainly a retired Roman soldier, as I said to you last Sunday, a hard-bitten army veteran who had seen many wars and many conflicts and much shedding of blood, and like all officials in a Roman colony, was a Roman citizen himself. Each, therefore, of different nationality. Asiatic, Greek, Roman. But in Christ, beloved, they found a unity that was hitherto unknown. Racially different. But the second thing is, they were different in their social backgrounds. Think of Lydia, a wealthy woman. We know that because her calling and her vocation was to sell the famous purple dyed garments with that famous dye extracted drop by drop from the shellfish, the murex shellfish, and hence a very expensive trade to be in indeed. And not only, if you look at verse 15, you see that her house was big enough to accommodate not only the slaves who evidently accompanied her to worship God on that Sabbath morning, but was big enough to accommodate the four missionary travelers as well, a wealthy woman. There was the slave girl, the very opposite end of the spectrum. 
you could scarcely sink lower in public estimation than to be a slave and a female slave at that. No possessions, no rights, no liberties, and even the money that she earned, as we saw, went into someone else's pocket. And here was the jailer, halfway between the two socially, a responsible and reasonably well-paid post in the local prison, but only a subordinate official, someone we would say today who came not from the upper class nor from the lower class, but from the middle class. Yet these three were founding members of the church in Philippi, admitted on the same terms into the same loving and warm fellowship of the church. And when you think of the contrast of the Jewish prayer that was offered by every devout Jew at that time, where every morning he said, I thank you, Lord, that you have not made me a woman or a slave or a Gentile. Here in the church of Christ were these very representatives of the three despised classes of society, a slave, a woman, and a Gentile in loving fellowship together in the worship services and at the Lord's table as we will come later here today. And Paul, who had just written his letter to the Christians of Galatia, could truly affirm that in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, but all are one in Christ Jesus. Isn't that beautiful? Now, the third difference, you notice, is that their personal needs were different. As far as we can judge from the passage, Lydia, for instance, could, have, could be said to have had an intellectual need because in verse 14, you recall, we read that she kept on listening to what Paul was preaching and teaching. The Greek imperfect tense. She kept on listening. And the Lord opened her heart to attend what Paul was saying. And as well as her spiritual needs being met, her intellectual needs, her questing spirit, her thinking mind was satisfied in Christ. The slave girl, by contrast, had surely psychological needs as well as spiritual ones. Certainly she needed the demon to be cast out of her life. But when that demon was cast out, there were profound psychological needs that were being met. You remember this poor girl had lost her identity. She was no longer a real individual person. But Satan had totally taken over control of her personality. And she was liberated to be a real human being again by the power of Christ. She became an integrated person. And it was the gospel that made her so. As her psychological as well as her spiritual needs were fully met. And then there was the jailer. What kind of need did he have? A moral need, certainly, from his question, what shall I do to be saved? From the wrath of God is the implication. His conscience was aroused. And so you see that each one of them, in a certain sense, had different personal needs. 
Yet all of these needs were met and fulfilled in Christ. Now do you see what I'm saying to you as I summarize this? In the gospel there is diversity of application. But there is unity of result. Beloved, we should never, never stereotype the saving ways of God. Each one of these different people recorded here had different and individual and unique needs. And the gospel came in specific ways and met all of those needs specifically. So often we want to stereotype the saving ways of God, don't we? But we must never do that. I was talking to a new attender in our congregation just recently who in his 50s, if not his 60s, became a believer in the Lord Jesus by reading the written word of God in the scriptures. But not all of you have come that way. And not all of you would have had the needs that a 50 or 60 year old man had. You were in the prime of youth. And in an hour, the Lord met with you by some word preached from the pulpit or some witness of a Christian friend and turned you inside out. But this dear man came gradually, like the dawn in the northern climates, where first there is twilight and then a strengthening light until the full glory of the sun breaks out from the eastern horizon. And it's not instantaneous as in tropical climates, where in a single moment, it seems, the sun jumps up from the distant horizon and all is light. There is diversity in the gospel, but there is unity in terms of its results. Now, thirdly and finally and quickly as I close, the gospel is not only insignificant but great. It is not only diverse but unified. It is also individual and social as well. Now, we hear much about the social gospel in our age, don't we? So many of the liberals in supposedly Christian churches tell us that the most important thing is not saving men's lives and souls from the wrath of God, but saving men's bodies from suffering in this world. We must feed the hungry. We must clothe the naked. We must minister to the temporal and physical needs of mankind. That's the most important office of the gospel. And so they have become social gospelers. But you see, I have to say to you this morning, there are social implications of the gospel that we evangelicals must never overlook in two areas from this passage, in our families and in the state. Now look quickly with me in the family. Isn't it striking in Acts 16 that salvation came to two out of three individuals and to their households in those two instances? Look at verse 15. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she besought the apostles to stay with her. Notice, she and the members of our household were baptized. And then again in verse 33, and immediately he and his family were baptized. Now what does that tell us? 
It tells us, beloved, that the gospel not only has individual application, but family application as well. There's already been in Acts one mention of a household baptism in Acts 10 verse 33 where Cornelius and all his household, we read, were baptized. And subsequently, listen, in the New Testament, there are four others, so that there are five household baptisms recorded in the New Testament. In the case of Lydia in verse 15, in the case of the jailer in verse 33, in Acts 18 verse 8, where we read of Crispus becoming a believer, and when you take that in connection with 1 Corinthians 1 verse 14, it's clear that his household was also baptized. And in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 16, where Paul says, I baptized the household of Stephanus. Five household baptisms in the New Testament. Now, certainly, this may have included slaves and servants who were in these households who believed as adults, yet undoubtedly it also included young children if they were members of that home at that time. How do we know? Because of the Old Testament practice of circumcision, where not only was the godly father commanded to believe in the Lord, but he was commanded to circumcise his male children as the badge of God's covenant promise to be their God and Savior as a believing family. And it's interesting that in verse 15 and verse 33, the Greek word oikos is used, and it's used on several other occasions, for household in the New Testament, such as 1 Timothy 3, verses 4 and 5, the elder being a good ruler of his household, where children are clearly in mind. And also in verse 12, as it applies to deacons. And in one other passage in 1 Timothy, it's used quite clearly of a family with children in it. And we say to our Baptist friends very lovingly, but very firmly, that if you object, for instance, in verse 34, where it says that the whole family was filled with joy because they had come to believe in God, and the Baptist says, ah, they were clearly adults in the household because they believed in God. The answer is that in the Greek of the New Testament, the believing is clearly attributed to the jailer as the head of the family. And the NIV is somewhat incorrect in saying that they believed in God when it could be translated because he had believed in God. And that clearly is the implication. Now what I would say to you is this. Do we not have a truncated version of Paul's answer to the jailer's question, what shall I do to be saved? Do you notice how Paul answered that question in verse 31? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And we stop there, don't we? But Paul didn't stop there. You will be saved and your households. And beloved, we have lost sight of the great biblical truth that God delights to save families. And there are social implications and covenantal implications of the gospel that he designs children to be blessed by it. 
And the normal expectation in our homes is that if one parent even is a believer there, that God designs the conversion of her children or his children after him or her as well. And isn't that a beautiful thought? Beloved, let us not have a truncated version of the gospel. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved and your household. The social implications of the gospel in our families. Very quickly, the state is involved as well. In verses 35 to 40 we read, of Paul imprisoned, refusing to be let out of the prison when the officers come, unless the magistrates themselves come in person and let Paul and Silas out, who have been beaten illegally as Roman citizens. Now, I wish I had time to develop this this morning, but I don't. But surely it says this to us, that there are implications of the gospel for the state as well as the church. Why did Paul summon the magistrates in all their dignity to the prison so that they would be responsible for his and Silas's release? Because, beloved, this was very important for the continuance of the young church in Philippi. In other words, Paul wanted to show the magistrates that he had done nothing illegal in founding the church in Philippi. But the illegality had been on their part. And the magistrates knew without any shadow of doubt when they had to come down to the prison and acknowledge de facto they were in the wrong. They could not lay a hand legally upon the infant church in Philippi. It was the magistrates, not the missionaries, who had been at fault in what had happened. Now that's a lesson, isn't it? But the other lesson is, I'm sure, regarding many debates today, including the abortion debate and how Christians should react to abortion and whether it is right for us to picket abortion clinics and so on. I believe this passage teaches us that we should not expect of an ungodly state Christian legislation. We should not expect of an unbelieving state equity of judgment. There will be miscarriage of justice as there was clearly here. And sometimes we have to bear it and to live with it. And it's only when the magistrate comes to me and says to me personally, you must abort your child that I will say to him, you may do whatever you want to with me, but I will not do so. I will go to prison and even to death if necessary to obey God's law rather than obey your law. But to actively resist authority is only justified when the state commands me individually to do something that is morally and biblically wrong. Meantime, I must recognize that I am living with a state that is ungodly and by every legal means I am to seek to influence the state towards standards of righteousness, to write letters, to speak to my member of the different houses of the Senate and so forth. 
But it is not justified, I believe, beloved, in upholding one law to break another law of God. And I think the example of the apostle here, if you study it down, would bear that lesson to us all. Well then, as I finish, when the gospel had come to Philippi, what had it done? It had begun insignificant, but in it was the very principle of greatness and of growth. It had come to deal with diverse needs, but enshrined within it was the principle of bringing those needs into a unity of satisfaction. It had come not only to individuals, but it had come with social implications, both for the family and the church. Now, as you sit at this table of the Lord together this morning, do you thank God, my dear friends, from the heart, for these blessings that have come into your lives? And do you come to this table, as I trust you do, in a sense of the privileges of these very things that have come into your lives today. May God grant you all that this may be so. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this passage and its lessons. We pray that now as we come to our Lord's table, it may be a blessed and renewing and revitalizing fellowship, and we may indeed take the word of God to our spiritual nourishment and our growth in grace through Christ our Lord. Amen.